WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking with Daniel Kibblesmith, writer by day for The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, writer by night for comics like Quantum and Woody, Lockjaw, and the upcoming Black Panther vs. Deadpool, which comes out October 3rd. We talk about those series, we talk about the comics he read growing up, the differences between writing for TV and writing for comics, and which characters he played in the old X-Men arcade game. Meanwhile, what's going on over at WMQComics.com? Tons! We're going to be doing it live this weekend at CapeCon at the Cape May County Library in Sea Isle City, uh, moderating a fandom debate panel basically asking people about the things they love, uh, Star Wars, Harry Potter, X-Men, etc., and why it's the best. And I'll be giving out some free comics, because comics literacy is my fandom. Also at WMQ Comics, we're gearing up for Extermination, the big X-Men event many com- beginning this week. Uh, made more exciting by the reveal we're getting not one, not two, but three awesome writers on the new Uncanny X-Men launching in November with a 10-part weekly story. Uh, personally, if you had told me either Matthew Rosenberg or Kelly Thompson were writing Uncanny, I would squee. But I'm curious to see what the two of them and Ed Brisson will do in a round-robin Avengers No Surrender style story. Uh, anyway, here's me and Daniel. Uh, well, I guess let's let's kind of start at the very beginning. Uh, you know, how did you get into reading comics? I got into reading comics uh, mostly through my dad's collection. Um, he was a Marvel reader in the '60s, and uh, Marvel and the Flash, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was never really into them. They were always kind of his thing, and. Um, he started picking them up again here and there uh, in the 80s uh, when I was a kid, kind of around like the John Byrne Man of Steel era. Mm-hmm. Uh, there started to be Superman comics in the house again. Um, but it wasn't uh, until um, I usually blame the X-Men wraparound arcade game because <laughs> I liked cartoons and, mm-hmm. you know, I liked the Adam West Batman show. Like I liked the characters uh, I think I was probably in a really similar position to uh, a lot of people now where they were getting superhero stuff through other uh, other avenues of pop culture. Mm-hmm. So uh, I didn't care about comics, but uh, I loved video games. Uh, so uh, we went to the Fun Zone Arcade in uh, Melrose Park, Illinois uh, by Triton College, mm-hmm. which I think, is, I think is a college bookstore now. But they had the giant wraparound X-Men game, and uh, that was... You know, I was a I was in an age where I was ready to, to kind of delve into something and uh, wanted to know who all these characters were, and uh, yeah, I, Nightcrawler I latched onto immediately. So I, I thought Nightcrawler's power as a, as a superhero was to turn into a like a colorful ball of fire and run around really fast, <laughs> which is what he does. Is what he does in the video game. So I, and so uh, my dad said, "Oh, you like you like Nightcrawler? I like Nightcrawler." And he had uh, he had the first issue of Excalibur, and that was my first title that I tried to to collect. You know, so then I started going to the comic book store, uh, which is that one is still there. Uh, I go to a Rick's One Stop in uh, Oak Park, Illinois, mm-hmm. and uh, been going there yeah on and off since I was uh, single digits, and. Um, then, you know, got into comics when I was kind of pre-adolescence uh, and had subscriptions to uh, to Excalibur, to the new Excaliburs that were coming out at the time and to Amazing Spider-Man. And then, uh, I don't know if you remember, uh, but the 90s happened and <laughs> uh, I think Age of Apocalypse and Clone Saga hit pretty close together. Mm-hmm. And I'd been, reading all, I'd been reading all my dad's Silver Age comics and those all... 
you know, that's kind of one big story. That's just Stan Lee doing whatever he was doing with the dialogue and the crossovers uh, that that month. Uh, and uh, it was really easy to kind of get all the, the fundamentals of these characters. You know, same with like the, the Justice League, because that wasn't really that much of a shared universe at the time. So all the Silver Age comics, I was those were easy for me to get into the characters and uh, the Pokemon aspect of kind of collecting them, <laughs> learning all their powers and real names and stuff. Sure. Uh, then the comics I was getting at the comic shop or through my subscription were just like inscrutable to me. So it was like I had, it was as though I had been like unfrozen in the 60s you know, or in the 90s and I was trying <laughs> to read, read the comics that were actually supposed to be for me. I was like, I don't get these at all. Like these comics, my dad's comics from the Silver Age, these feel like they're for kids these comics feel like they're for my dad if he'd kept up. Uh, so I, I, then I kind of fell off of them, fell off of them for, for a good chunk of time. Um, and it wasn't until I was in uh, film school uh, that uh, friends started giving me um, kind of like the big seminal graphic novels, like the, the Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns stuff, but also things like um, Eight Ball uh, or uh, like a, uh, Johnny Ryan or Julie Doucette or uh, James Kolchalko, like kind of the fantagraphics, mm -hmm. like black and white, you know, autobiographical cartooning stuff. And that that's when I was like, oh, this is comics. Like comics is a medium. It's not just Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Spider-Man. It's whoever the creators are, are making these things and uh, telling, <laughs> telling stories. Sometimes the stories are just really confusing. <laughs> Um, your dad having all those, those silver age books, did he ever, you know, was he kind of looking at them as, you know, obviously before the bubble burst in the nineties, but, but as an investment or, or, you know, strictly for the love of the medium. Kind of in between because he sold a lot of his collection in the seventies, uh, when he was just, he just needed to buy a car. He just needed to be an adult. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was kind of that classic, you know, getting rid of your comic book collection. And, you know, now when we talk about it, it's like, oh, I had X-Men number three and I had, uh, you know, the first appearance of The Watcher or uh, actually that one he probably kept. <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it wasn't it wasn't what it became. It wasn't like the the boom of the 90s. But I think there was that, definitely in our house, there was this kind of idea like we bought into it pretty hard that like you would buy if it was an action figure that we wanted as kids it was a conversation about whether you took it out of the box or not and uh, I think in our basement we still have some of like the toy biz x-men on the orange cards who are still in there in their bubble packaging and I'll look it up on eBay every once in a while it's like oh that's you know 15 dollars instead of five I mean that's pretty good you know if your house was worth three times what you bought it for that would be pretty good true <laughs> <laughs> so, but we definitely like, so as a family, we kind of, we definitely bought into the bubble. Like we bought a lot of, uh, you know, death and return of Superman related copies. And, uh, I remember I was reading maximum carnage, which, uh, to this day, I don't really totally know what's going on in maximum carnage, but God, do I love it. Um, I love it so much. I think I got most of the plot through the video game, to be honest. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's really, I mean, it was a very, it was that kind of rule of cool time. It didn't need to make a lot of sense. It just needed to, to look awesome. Uh, oh, it's, it's fantastic. There's a page I'll never forget where uh, Spider-Man has uh, flames behind him. 
and he says, uh, you know, it's it's one of those many like Peter Parker breaking moments where he's going to start being a tough guy. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, from here on out, you'll get no more mercy from Spider-Man. He's waving his fist in the air. And as a kid, I was like, this is it. This is the real thing right here. Spider-Man is he's mad and there's no going back. Uh, so I bought a bunch of the Maximum Carnage issues, but I didn't have part one. And then they reprinted it in uh, a magazine. I want to think I want to say it was called like Spider-Man Unlimited or something. So yeah. I had Spider-Man Unlimited number one that reprinted the beginning of Maximum Carnage. And I thought, like, this is it. Like, this is number one of a Spider-Man comic. Like, I'm going to be a millionaire someday. So, uh, you know, I'm not, you know, <laughs> definitely not from that. <laughs> uh, with the uh, with the, art, the uh, X-Men arcade game, was Nightcrawler always your go-to, or did you uh, tend to switch it up? Oh, I loved switching it up. But Nightcrawler was, you know, he was my main, as they say, mm-hmm. yeah, on the sure. circuit. <laughs> uh yeah he was he was he was my guy um and i think nightcrawler was sort of just fundamentally like kind of an eye-opening uh character for me uh in terms of getting back into comics especially getting into to marvel comics and then later uh indie comics and vertigo comics because he's you know he looks like a monster and that's always been very much like the marvel thing is that like the thing is a yeah. monster spider-man is weird uh, and you know, they're, they're flawed and they have feet of clay. Uh, so as somebody who didn't care about comics and sort of only knew like Adam West, Batman and Ruby Spears, Superman, uh, seeing like a, like a devil, like a blue devil person, not to be confused with the other comic book, blue devil person. Um, the one actually called blue devil, the one who's called blue devil, the one who <laughs> just goes all in. Uh, yeah, so I, I, but in the, man, in the game, I'd say Colossus is my next go-to mm-hmm. just because I have a personal fondness, uh, for the character, but you know, it, it, they kept re-releasing it on, um, I had it on, a PlayStation and, um, Colossus is real slow, which I didn't realize in the arcade. Cause when you're playing with a joystick, it kind of, everybody sucks. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, Colossus is a real lumbering giant. So I, I've been doing more Wolverine, uh, when I'm not Nightcrawler because, uh, he can uh, swirl the the mutant power in a uh, omni direction, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of similar to Nightcrawler's thing with um, uh, Cyclops and Storm. It's it's that that straightforward blast and Dazzlers. I just remember being impossible to aim, but I love the little move that she does. The little uh, I thought she was before I knew what Dazzlers' deal was. I thought she was supposed to be like a like a Broadway dancer because in the video game <laughs> she does kind of a flourish when she's throwing her big. Akira bubble of yellow, of uh, of pink energy at all of the at all of the seven foot tall sentinels that are attacking. Yeah, <laughs> the ones that are only slightly tall. There's so much weird about that game. I I downloaded it for Xbox 360 a few years ago, and like the bad Japanese dubbing. You know, you're fighting, you're kind of melee fighting, like you said, seven foot tall sentinels, and then like alligator dudes, which are not you know correlative to anything I remember from X Men comics. No, I'm sure they're in there somewhere. Like I, I, I'm, I have this weird benefit of the doubt that they didn't totally pluck them out of nothing because the stuff I am familiar with, I can kind of, I can kind of see what it's derived from. Mm-hmm. And I haven't read all of X Men, so it's like, yeah, it's, alligator dudes are definitely an X Men somewhere, right? Like they I, I guess in the Savage Land, but <laughs> right, right, or like a yeah, like a Sauron thing or a high evolutionary thing or something. But the 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 cartoon show came out shortly thereafter, mm-hmm. 
And I remember thinking like, all right, this is it. These are my guys. And I didn't know that that game was based on that other failed pilot, the Pride of the X-Men pilot right. that, I've now, that I've now seen but had not seen. And that <laughs> these X-Men were going to be totally unrecognizable to me. Uh, and that's one of the reasons I started going back into the comic book shop because I was like, well, I love this furry version of Beast. I've never seen Blue Beast before. Uh, he's like Nightcrawler. I will go into the comic book store, and I will I'll get the uh, the Spiral Bound Guide to the X Mansion, uh, and I'll start learning learning about who all these '90s X Men are. So um, yeah, I was definitely mostly a Marvel kid, uh, mostly a Marvel kid growing up, and then weirdly Vertigo, like early Sandman and Swamp Thing, was kind of my inroads to the DC stuff, and then mm-hmm. I started reading more of those sort of one-off Alan Moore DC uh, uh, DC backup stories and things, and kind of getting a getting a feel for the universe that that was happening that I wasn't aware of growing up. Um. Getting back, you had mentioned uh, Age of Apocalypse before and kind of not, you know, like feeling lost reading it. That's a very, like, I feel like 90s kids are all just sort of like, when you talk to a, you know, like a 90s kid about X-Men, they usually go right to Age of Apocalypse. But uh, you kind of had the opposite experience with it, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely like, it's definitely captivating. But I wasn't there. I wasn't in the, you know, I wasn't in the, the flow at that time, um, I was like, felt like I was trying to catch a moving train. Uh, so I loved, you know, Nightcrawler and I loved all the Alan Davis Excalibur stuff. And then with my uh, dad's collection had a bunch of uh, classic X-Men uh, issues in it. So it was like reprints of the Dark Phoenix saga. Mm-hmm. And then those were the stories that were starting to get adapted for the, the animated series. Like they were kind of working backwards with the continuity in a weird way. Yeah. So when X hyphen Calibre uh, dropped, <laughs> I I just it was too, and I was getting a little older, and it was so conspicuously cool. Uh, I was just yeah, I was just starting to get cynical, and I knew that I knew that uh, you know image image was happening, and that that there was starting to be this divergence between. Uh, the the old the old fashioned stuff, which is still largely what I was into, what I was reading, because um, I was coming at it from a different direction than my peers, and the the newfangled kind of art driven, like in your face, you know, swords and and facial scarring and and double swords. <laughs> uh, I do love double swords. I love all this stuff now. <laughs> Well, it's like those guitars that are like double guitars. It's just, right. you know. But, but you can stab someone. <laughs> twice. Once. Twice. Uh, so I, yeah, I was I was off at that point. Like, I really felt like, okay, like, I feel a little bit like, I feel a little bit like this is a fad now and that I'm being taken advantage of. And I can't afford to, I can't afford to spend money on something that, you know, isn't as valuable as I thought it was going to be. Because I was also getting interested in this other thing that wasn't going to be valuable, magic cards. Ah. So, uh, yeah, part of it was that me and my friends kind of switched to, like, cards and and tabletop gaming and and stuff at that time. And it wasn't long after that that I I always made movies uh, with camcorders and stuff. It wasn't too long after that I just was taking uh, video classes at the high school and and, uh, saving up to buy a digital camera. Uh, so I didn't really think of them as I didn't think of comics as something that were ever going to be part of the 
like a career or, or even really like a lifelong passion until I was in college again and uh, hanging out with people who are like, oh, you like comics? Uh, it turns out you haven't read any of them. Here are... <laughs> Here is what, you know, here is what comics is. Uh, so, like, and even, like, superhero comics, people giving me just, like, oh, like, here's, like, you've never read X Factor? Okay, here's, it's all the guys that you like, but it's crazy. You have to check this out. <laughs> so, um, it was, it was, uh, and it was really nice to, to come back to this thing and learn that it was, you know, as a kid, it was, it was too big and too complicated. And now it's big and complicated in a way that, that rewards sort of a, a lifetime of exploring. Certainly. Um, what are you, what are you reading now? Uh, I always freeze when people ask me that. Um, Mr. Miracle. Uh, I promised myself that next time someone asks me what I'm reading right now, I remember to say Mr. Miracle. Um, I don't read a ton of stuff new, uh, because I subscribe to, uh, the unlimited apps, sure. both the Marvel and the comiXology, uh, unlimited apps. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I read uh, all of the uh, Deadpool versus uh, miniseries in preparation for uh, the one that I'm getting to do, uh, Black Panther versus Deadpool. Uh, and uh, they are nuts. I understand why. I understand why they did uh, a dozen of them, and I hope that they do a dozen more. Um, but yeah, Mr. Mr. Miracle is, is of course, uh, fantastic. Um, I'm trying to remember. I really love... I'm behind, but I really love all of the um, uh, young animal uh, stuff. Uh, and I read the first uh, trade of everything uh, put out by Young Animal uh, over my honeymoon. That was very, <laughs> that was very, that was very fun. Just like sitting by sitting by the water and reading all of the Young Animal comics that existed at that time. Uh, so I love, yeah, like uh, Jody Hauser's Mother Panic. Uh, mm -hmm. I really love. I like how there's another. There's just more Gotham. There's always more Gotham, uh, and one that uh, has uh, celebrities and like weird technology in it, and uh, kind of yeah, like a spooky schools. Like it all really, it all really fits. That's uh, one of the things I like about comics in general is that people are just adding stuff to the ball of wax over a hundred years, and uh, if it works, it works. You just get to contribute to the universe. Absolutely. Um, kind of transitioning, obviously, uh, you mentioned, uh, Black Panther versus Deadpool, which is coming out in October. Uh, yes. 24th, I think. I'm not a hundred percent positive. I should know that. <laughs> That's okay. Um, since the Black Panther movie, obviously people have come to kind of hold that character and his supporting cast and the entire fictional nation of Wakanda in a very high regard. Uh, but it's also a Deadpool comic though. So you kind of have to let a little bit of the air out of that balloon. Uh, what kind, what elements of Wakanda are you kind of looking at as as you know ripe for satire or at least for you know Deadpooling I guess. Yeah, no, that's kind of the that's kind of the whole dynamic. Uh, that's what I'm that's what I'm so excited about is that uh, I love both of those characters uh, so much and uh, uh, Deadpool was a really was a really fun journey uh, for me because I fell out of comics you know, basically during the Liefeld era. Sure. So Deadpool, uh, when I was a kid was like emblematic of all the stuff that I kind of didn't get. Uh, and then, uh, as, as he evolved over the years, he became the comedy character. Like while I was <laughs> pursuing this other career in professional comedy and it just became a, 
a dream of mine, like my number one Marvel character I wanted to write was Deadpool. Uh, and, uh, Black Panther is of course, you know, the total opposite. Like in some ways he's, he's Batman ish. Like he's very, uh, he's perfect. He's composed. He's serious. Uh, he's, he's always one step ahead. Uh, so he's the perfect straight man to a Deadpool. Uh, and it's, it's just uh, about, uh, throwing them at each other. Uh, and uh, letting them be like the most emblematic of themselves uh, and playing with the, the tension of uh, a guy who's always one step ahead versus a guy whose moves cannot be predicted. Uh, so it's, it's going to be, it's going to be really fun and it's already incredibly violent. <laughs> it's so violent. You guys, it's the most violent thing I've ever worked on. Uh, you mentioned you were reading the, the the Deadpool versus comics. Were you looking at the yeah at all of Colin Bunn's stories? Like, okay, well, this is what I have to top. Yeah, a little bit. Not top as much as just how ex- like how excited I was to to get to play. You know, to put my own to put my own spin on it. Um, I think that uh, the one the one thing that's kind of consistent through Deadpool is um, that he's. You know, he he's funny and he breaks the fourth wall, but all of that is kind of like uh, s- symptoms of the fact that he's Marvel's Bugs Bunny, I think. Like, he's <laughs> the guy who, he's Bugs Bunny with guns and swords. Uh, he just, you can drop him in any situation uh, and you uh, sort of know roughly how he's going to behave or, you know, not behave, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't too hung up on topping things because, you know, there's, like I was saying, there's, there's a lot of those. I was, I was joking around about how many of them there are and they're all pretty different. Like some of them treat Deadpool as this kind of really cutthroat mercenary. Like they focus on that aspect of the character that he's like the world's greatest killing machine and he's only in it for, for the money and he's kind of cracking wise while he's doing it. And then, you know, there's Deadpool comics where he has a family and a, and a, and a kid and the recent, the recent comics have given him this really, uh, really rich kind of supporting cast and stuff. So I think, uh, uh, the core of it is just a guy who is, um, uh, <laughs> uh, a guy who can't sit still, a guy who's yeah. basically a guy who's basically good at heart, uh, but can't, but can't sit still. And uh, I love pitting him against uh, T'Challa, against the Black Panther, because uh, the Black Panther is the immovable object. Like, he's the guy with the infinite patience, the guy who can't be, you know, you can't get him to lose his temper. He's uh, level-headed and cool and, uh, uh, you know, like, uh, has, he's beaten you before you even know the fight has started. Uh, so, um, so far, it's, it's, it's been a blast. Like, I can't believe that... Uh, I can't believe I get this opportunity just because I'm such a huge fan of both characters. That is awesome. Um, you've also written a couple of, of all ages comics in your day, uh, Lockjaw, Valiant High. Uh, how often when you're writing those books, would you come up with like a joke or a story beat and then kind of have to be like, uh, nope, wrong audience, save it for the next one? That's a great question. Um, I don't think because... Like I, anybody who follows me like on the internet knows that I, I am not strictly an all ages writer. Uh, but I really like, uh, I really like all ages 
comics. I think that I think that there should be as many comics um, for kids for sure. But I but I like making them all ages because I think that that's how you can enjoy comics with kids and how kids can start getting uh, start being exposed to themes that you wouldn't necessarily get in like a like a licensed property like in a SpongeBob uh, comic. Um, so, you know, Lockjaw's, Lockjaw's a, a good example because the, the kind of point of view character, the sort of Doctor Who companion who's long for the ride is D-Man mm-hmm. and his whole arc, uh, is about, uh, depression and, uh, like a desire, uh, for usefulness. Uh, and, uh, I think those are things that, um, you wouldn't necessarily have in a comic where, say like Lockjaw was just hanging out with, uh, the, the pet Avengers mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and the, most of the dialogue was, was maybe provided by like Thor frog, uh, like that, that's, uh, I think is, is, is charming as hell and I would like to read it, but, um, the themes that I, the themes that I'm interested in are not necessarily like rated R, uh, but they can be, they can be mature ideas. Um, and I think the same deal with, with Valiant High. Like, I, I don't remember where I heard this, but that um, people in high school watch shows about college students and that people in junior high school watch shows about high school. So when I did Valiant High, I wanted them to have, like, crushes on each other. I wanted them to go to the dance. Uh, I wanted there to be a big football game, even though I don't know anything about football. <laughs> uh and uh, I had to rope in uh, my friends uh, uh, as a consultant. Uh, <laughs> we had to watch the game together and be like, okay, if I wanted like this kind of dramatic tension, like if this situation to arise, like in, you know, underdog sports movie, like what would those things be called? And like, how would that situation arise? So with Valiant High, um, same deal. Like it's an all ages comic, but I think I was definitely drawing on nostalgia, you know, positive and negative nostalgia for high school when I was writing it. And I think adults can enjoy it that way. But I wanted middle schoolers to be able to pick it up and be like, okay, this is a superhero high school. Those are all things that are inherently interesting to me. Um, with Latra, you know, especially talking about kind of being able to read comics uh, with your kids. I mean, I can tell you, uh, you know, personally, I read Lockjaw with my son, uh, you know, and, and both enjoyed it uh, kind of, going back to that series a little bit, you got to play in some pretty obscure parts of the Marvel Universe. You know, you mentioned D-Man, obviously, as the companion. You also use Kazar, uh, Spider-Ham, Sleepwalker. Uh, Sleepwalker especially feels like a walking BuzzFeed listicle of 19 comics characters only 90s kids understand. Is, this is, sounds so ridiculous when you say them all in a row like that. Right. <laughs> it really feels, it really sounds like more of an agenda than it was. <laughs> Well, I mean, I mean, did you like when you were kind of working out the plot? Are these characters that you had to pitch for, or, or you know, yeah. was Marvel like, you know, yeah. sure, go for it? It was a little of both. Uh, I mean, okay. we knew that when you do a Lockjaw comic, like when when you sit down to write a about the Inhumans' dog, mm-hmm. and none of the Inhumans are really going to be in it, uh, the you, the expectation I think of of the readers is this is going to be like silly like this is going to be out there this is a you know f-list character in some ways he doesn't even talk so i think that i felt like there was an obligation to to do stuff that was on the periphery of the marvel universe because we're writing a 
about a character who's on the periphery of the Marvel Universe. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, this was my first Marvel comic, and I kind of wanted to go all in. So, uh, you know, I thought about the, the themes that, that, that we were working with, like, obviously, the, the kind of emotional themes were the idea of, of you know, who, who needs a dog? Who needs to pet a dog right now? Like, who gets a dog and why? Uh, so the answer ended up being D-Man going through a breakup. That's exactly who I imagine would get a dog in the Marvel <laughs> Universe. Um, but, but uh, you know, that's just kind of the, the emotional core. Like, practically what we're dealing with is a animal who can go anywhere. So you have a main character with the impulses of a dog who's capable of going to every, you know, corner of the Marvel Universe and... Uh, uh, other dimensions, which I didn't know there was like continuity precedent for until I started researching uh, our scripts. Um, so it seemed like the the only thing you could really do is make it is make it kind of a travel log of the unseen corners of the Marvel universe, uh, which is uh, why uh, the issues have those big kind of bubble letter like postcard splash pages. I wanted to give people that feel of like. You know, we're we're someplace remote, like we're someplace far away. And it's like greetings from uh, and then from there, it was just like looking. Uh, I mentioned this in the letters column. Actually, I looked at uh, monumental overpower. Speaking of card games. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> card games and things only 90s kids would remember. <laughs> so I looked at monumental over overpower. And I was like, OK, like what are the places in the Marvel Universe? Like not just the characters, but but really first and foremost, like what are the places that you can go. And then later, you know, when you tell your friend about this comic and be like, yeah, Lockjaw goes here. Uh, so we crammed as many of those locations into, into four issues. And I think we ended up getting, um, uh, there's an issue set all in the Savage Land. There's an issue uh, set primarily on uh, Spider-Ham's universe, which is called Larval Earth for reasons that I will never understand. Uh, and they also go to uh, the Mindscape, and that's where they see, see Sleepwalker. So I just wanted to go to all of the places that none of the other characters ever go, because frankly, like they're not worth Captain America's time. <laughs> like most <laughs> most people buying a Captain America comic don't want to see him hanging out on Duck World. I do, but most people buying a Lockjaw comic might not feel. Like they're not getting their money's worth if Lockjaw goes to you know to Duck World, uh, or um, uh, you know the the <laughs> the Spider Ham universe, because it sort of seems like a sillier place. It sort of seems like exactly where Lockjaw would end up. Uh, one of my favorite gags in that series was the uh, when they fight the Wrecking Zoo at the uh, I, I, I think it's the beginning of three, but uh, when they first end up on uh, Spider Ham's planet, I thought that was. Fantastic. Thanks. Thanks. I'm, I'm going to hell for that for sure. For all of those puns. <laughs> the, the wrecking zoo is, uh, the whisker, um, uh, uh, thunder bowel, thunderball. I don't know how to say it out loud, but it's thunderball. If he was an owl, <laughs> uh, and, uh, moldozer, who's a big mole. And, uh, the one that I'm, the one that I'm definitely going to have to answer for someday, which is a smile diver <laughs> who is, Pile driver <laughs> with both of the words changed, and he's a dolphin who has legs and a tail. It's so gross. It's so unacceptable. 
but I, I think, I think that those are the first characters that I created for the Marvel universe. And I have no idea if I'm incredibly proud or, or deeply apologetic. <laughs> they, they are going to like five or 10 years from now, they were going to show up in like a spider ham one shot. And I'm totally okay yeah. with that. I'll write it. I don't care. I love those idiots. Uh, was there was there any part of you that felt a little twinge of sadness when you wrapped up Lockjaw and you're like, oh, well, where's he going to show up next? Oh, uh, yeah, Donny Cates is doing Death of the Inhumans. Oh, hey, can I swear on this podcast? Yes, you can. Absolutely. Fucking Donny, man. Fucking Donny. Right? Um, yeah, no, I knew. I know. Yeah. <laughs> so I knew that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I, I think I found that out like a little like a little bit before it happens. I didn't know it while I was writing most of the series. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I found out like while while some of the art was being done. Um, yeah, no, I know. I know Donnie. I know what he writes. He writes about like monsters and vampires and, you know, venoms and ghost riders. Like I know he's going to do something terrible to my dog. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I get it. Uh, it's, uh, I read, I read uh, Death of the Inhumans. It's really, really good. <laughs> it's um, killing a dog is an incredibly affecting thing you can do. Worked for John Wick. Uh, I, sure, man, did it ever. John Wick had a real day after that. <laughs> he just, he just kind of, he just kind of went off. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I definitely felt sad cause I, I love Lockjaw. I was going through, um, old notebooks and, uh, I found stuff that I had pitched, uh, for Lockjaw, like well before I was making comics professionally, mm-hmm. like just stuff that I had written down. Like if I was trying to break into comics, what is the kind of character that they might let a new writer take a chance on? And I thought Lockjaw would have been a really interesting choice. So I was finding notes that I'd written in like 2012, 2013 before, uh, before I was, I was making comics. Um, so the fact that I actually got to write Lockjaw was, was huge for me. Um, and it kind of all goes back to the same, you know, to my comics reader origin story. The fact that I didn't know that Lockjaw wasn't a big deal because mm-hmm. I read all of the comics from the sixties kind of together, like in one big, in one big blob. So like, if anything, like the X-Men didn't seem like a very big deal if you're reading the comics in the 60s. Uh, it's, it's, uh, but the, the Fantastic Four, you know, is obviously the flagship title. And yeah. the Inhumans are all over that thing. So, uh, I, I don't know. I, I was, I was uh, extremely fortunate to, to write a, a send-off for Lockjaw before he met his, his fate. Spoilers, you guys. Spoilers for me being mad at Donnie Cates. <laughs> he knows what he did. Um, yeah, no, you're, you're right about the 60s, though. It's, it's it, You know, if your only exposure was kind of, you know, those those Silver Age Marvel comics, the X-Men are basically Stan and Jack's scraps. Which is, yeah, and they all, and it's also, like, just visually, like, as a child, like, the the they're all wearing blue and yellow and they're all white people and they're not like, if you're not really paying attention, you might like not know which one is beast right away. Right. <laughs> you know, like if you're not looking, if his feet aren't coming right at the reader. Uh, yeah. I think some of the sixties X-Men, and I love it. You know, again, I love it now. I love what it, I love what it, 
was the genesis of. I love that it was allowed to foster so much weirdness uh, under the radar because it felt like the stepchild at the time. But um, yeah, I was reading everything as though it was of equal weight. I didn't have any kind of cultural bias uh, about about the, the characters individually. I think I still kind of write like that. I think that's why Sleepwalker and D-Man and... Like, honestly, when you said, when you put Kazar on the list, or Kazar, again, no idea how it's pronounced, uh, I'm genuinely unclear on how popular a character he is or isn't. Like, for all I know, he's got, like, a huge internet fan base. We tried to give him a huge internet fan base by making him incredibly gorgeous. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, I hope that, I hope that Lockjaw continues finding readers and trades, if only so people can see, uh, his art and how he gave Kazar uh, uh, a perfect body and then mutton chops. <laughs> That's right. I don't think it's got it. Yeah, I forgot about the mutton chops. Oh, yeah. It's a brilliant touch. It's because it really, like, uh, I'm uh, not sure. I assume it was uh, his idea, Carlos's idea, but it taps into his kind of weird colonial roots as like a Tarzan knockoff. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. I love it. I loved working with him on Lockjaw. <laughs> um, another uh, another arc that I was a big fan of was your uh, five issues of Quantum and Woody, which had a very uh, Venture Brothers quality to them. Uh, I was wondering, actually, if you were a fan of that show at all, and it kind of intended oh, that thanks. going in. No, I love Venture Brothers, but that didn't occur to me. Um, I'm kind of glad it didn't occur to me, actually, because uh, I think I, I would have, it might have been more of a conscious reference, because... Yeah, I do. I do love that show, and and they are all also dysfunctional brothers. Um, yeah, with Quantum and Woody, uh, I was thinking more in terms of um, uh, similar uh, though is uh, like Rick and Morty, like just kind of a mm -hmm. mad science caper. Uh, but now that you mention it, yeah, Venture Brothers is so solidly in the same genre. Um, but one of my one of my other big influences, you know, coming as a guy who who now makes comedy and comics professionally you know together and separately was uh the tick oh yeah and uh i know that a lot of those creators uh ended up, ended up working on venture brothers so i think the tick was uh you know i would have been the right age for it i think and that was one of the first places that i saw a uh, satire that was sort of kind of aimed at both children and adults in the sort of proto adult swim way mm -hmm. and that was also one of my first indie comics as well when i got got back into comics and then finding out that the tick and the Ninja Turtles were both kind of uh, occasionally parodies of the Frank Miller Daredevil. Uh, just just blew my mind. Like the you know the the connected Marvel universe has always been you know captivating. I think to to me and to other kids. But like finding out like who the creators were and like who knew each other and who was like riffing on each other's stuff. Mm -hmm. Like the fact that I was I was. Uh, I think I ended up putting this on, on, on Twitter at some point. The fact that Deadpool is sort of a riff on Deathstroke the Terminator. Right. And that Cable is sort of a riff on the Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator means that there was a billion-dollar movie this year that was Terminator versus Terminator, and nobody knew. Because the characters had already taken on such like uh, like an identity and an iconic nature of their own, that you know the average moviegoer doesn't know like the weird DNA that's in there. 
So I think that was another another fun thing to to come to come to as an adult is kind of finding out like the weird moving parts of comics, and like you know what are <laughs> what are these weird inside jokes that Steve Gerber is doing? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, part of what made your uh, the Quantum and Woody run great was you know you were paired with Kano who's doing all these really fun really amazing layouts uh now that you've been doing this for a bit what's your what is your give and take like with the artists that you work with yeah well with with uh with kano it was um uh very much a process of not getting in the way of a genius like i i, mm-hmm. I think that's an easy one to answer because uh people would show me finished pages of you know quantum and woody and say like wow man you that was really uh ballsy of you to write a like a 17 panel grid like, dude, I didn't write a, I would never do that to somebody. <laughs> That's all him. I am not presumptuous enough in my abilities to say just like, oh, heads up. You know, I don't know who's going to be working on this, but it needs to be 17 perfectly square panels where like time speeds up and slows down. Uh, so um, what I try to do is uh, I, I've always written full script. Uh, you know, I haven't, I haven't been at this professionally for that long, so I've only ever written full script because those were the models that I was working off of. And uh, I try to give people, you know, I also went to, to film school, so I have some, you know, uh, <laughs> tiny egotistical director inside of me who's like, oh, this will pack more of an emotional punch if it's a close-up or if, you know, it's a low angle looking up at the guy. So... I try to supply the artist with uh, options, mm-hmm. like lay down a good lay down a good baseline, uh, so that um, they're never left with more work than they're already doing. But uh, for the most part, um, I'm I'm good. I'm pretty hands off. I I think if something's important to the story or if something's like lost in the clarity, then occasionally I'll, I'll pipe up, but, uh, all my experiences have been so positive and the editors that are involved are usually so on top of things, uh, you know, that, that any, anything that reads, you know, uh, weird to me is usually, uh, take, taken care of like, well, well before I see it, you know, certainly well before the reader sees it. So, um, I try to just kind of uh, pull my weight uh, for the artist, but if they've got better ideas, they usually are better ideas because they're the artist. You know, we've talked about a lot of the comics you've written. You're also, uh, you know, a writer for Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Uh, what is what is an average work day like for you? You know, where you're kind of trying to oh, balance all that. <laughs> stressful. Uh, <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, the show is, the show is great. Um, it's, uh, it's the kind of proverbial dream job. Um, the stuff that we're talking about is rough. So it means a lot to me to be on a team with people who, who feel like a family, uh, and you know, who do move, uh, as quickly and, and urgently and passionately uh, on, on everything as, as, as <laughs> the current political landscape requires. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's intense. Uh, when I'm doing that, I'm only doing that. Uh, it's very interesting to kind of come home and put on my, my comic book hat. Uh, but the average day is, um, 
pretty much what people expect. I think it's pretty intuitive once once you you know how it's done. Uh, but there's a pitch meeting in the morning, uh, or you know, like a couple of pitch meetings in the morning, and uh, those pitches uh, are usually off news stories. Um, the, at least the one the morning pitches are usually off news stories, and uh, those get turned into assignments. Uh, you have a first draft in, you know, pretty early, like around noon. Uh, the head writers kind of take that and help polish it into a second draft that goes to rehearsal. Uh, we see what works in rehearsal that turns into a, a third draft by then, like a bunch more news is broken. So we're upstairs writing about like, uh, the fact that, uh, oh, I don't know. The president of a certain country's deputy campaign manager may have just flipped in courts on the president of a certain country's former campaign manager, something like that. Something that may or may not have happened today and yesterday. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, it's, it's hectic, but, um, right now it's the only way I know how to process what's going on. If I wasn't able to be in a machine that burned this stuff for fuel, mm-hmm. uh, man, you think my Twitter's annoying now? Like I would just be a wreck on there. So having a, having an outlet, uh, having an outlet uh, that is, that is cathartic and, you know, I, 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 I don't know if I, I like to say that, 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 uh, I don't like to say this, but I, uh, have observed that, mm-hmm. uh, if you are, if these are your politics and if they're not your politics, uh, forgive me. And, and I promise you, you'll still love, uh, Black Panther versus Deadpool <laughs> number one. <laughs> But uh, if these are your politics, uh, I am fond of saying that John Stewart never got George W. Bush impeached, but he did make people feel better and give them context about what was going on uh, and uh, kept everybody a little bit more informed. And uh, I think that we're in another era like that. Uh, and I'm very honored to be working with uh, somebody who, you know, is is of the the uh, John Stewart uh, and Daily Show, you know, world and model and family, um, who's yeah taking up the mantle and is doing kind of the kind of the same thing for the Trump era. So yeah, if I wasn't part of if I wasn't part of this team right now, I think I'd be going nuts. Um, what do you what do you kind of have to do differently, either physically or mentally, uh, writing comics versus writing for TV? Um, it's pretty, it's pretty different actually. It's pretty far off. Um, I, sometimes I compare it to playing like video games. Like Mm -hmm. if you're, if you're looking at the person with the controller in their hands, it looks identical. But if you're looking at like, uh, you know, uh, (laughs) Mario Kart versus, uh, Grand Theft Auto or something. Like, even those are too similar because they're both driving games. (laughs) If you're looking. Yeah, Yeah, one of them has prostitutes. (laughs) That is true. That is true. And Mario Kart should address that. But uh, if you're looking at like Tetris versus Breath of the Wild, you there know what I mean? Go. Yeah. Like the Colbert show is much more in that sort of like, okay, stuff is coming at you. Uh, you you are good at writing these jokes. You never get writer's block. You have muscle memory. You have a formula. You have a, a, a staff who's helping you out. You can bounce something off somebody in real time immediately. Uh, and then when I switched to writing narrative, um, it's still formulaic in as far as comic books are very structured the same way the screenplay would be structured, but it's a lot more exploratory. Okay. So when I write for the Colbert show, I think it takes on kind of a mystery science theater quality where you're kind of riffing on, riffing on stimuli. Mm-hmm. 
And with the narrative stuff, I kind of have to walk around a little bit. You know, maybe I, I, I go to the gym and I get an idea in the shower. And then you have a few sort of sparks uh, that the, the muses provide to you. And then the workmanlike stuff begins. Then you start stitching them together in a plot that makes sense. Uh, and uh, if you, I think, have a good understanding of your characters, and that's one of the really fun things about writing characters that are beloved is that I, re I really feel like I know what I know what these characters would do. And I have a shorthand with them already from reading so many Deadpool and Black Panther comics, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, then you can kind of just, okay, I've got point A, I've got point B, I've got point C. Here's how this person would react in this situation. And Quantum and Woody was also very much like that because their personalities are so complete and they're also bouncing off of each other. Uh, yeah, if, <laughs> hey, if you liked my, uh, listeners, if you liked my Quantum and Woody run, uh, I suspect that you'll also like the comic where the uh, white guy and the black guy, <laughs> uh, a criminal who is freewheeling and a straight-laced guy with a lot of responsibilities, uh, uh, the difference is, uh, a lot more, a lot more violence, a lot more swords. Um, I Wow. Yeah, I just got those similarities. Wow. Um, hey, me too. <laughs> I also just got those similarities. Uh, um, your wife. Uh, it's true. It's a yeah. guy who lives in like the a guy who lives in like the id uh, versus uh, a guy who's you know has the weight of the world on his shoulders. Uh, I think that's that's a really fun that's a really fun dynamic. So in hindsight, I shouldn't be surprised that I, I rolled into Deadpool versus Black Panther so excitedly. Um, your wife, Jen, is also a writer and editor. Do you guys, are you guys ever sort of writing together in the, in the house or apartment at the, at the same time? Oh yeah. Constantly. Yeah. She works from home, but, uh, mm -hmm. she writes well into the evening. Uh, so, uh, sometimes, uh, a good chunk of her work day will be in at night while I'm still here. So, uh, yeah, we will kind of write in silence. I usually have to go to the other room or we just end up hanging out. Mm. Uh, sometimes, you know, uh, we both have writing to do and then that becomes like, Hey, let's just, let's just play a few rounds of injustice too. just, just a couple of rounds of injustice too. Um, but for the most, for the most part, yeah. I mean, in order to do, you know, she has multiple jobs and they're all self driven, uh, which I, I really, I really admire. I have one job that is like strictly deadline driven and, uh, I, that's how I'm able to get it done because I have to have a script in at noon. Uh, and then another job that's kind of more broadly deadline driven, but it's like, okay, you have, you know, like two weeks to work on this one, use that time wisely. Uh, so, uh, I think that she's, she's a little better about being self self-disciplined, but, um, mm -hmm. Yeah, if, if she wasn't also writing at night at home, uh, I, I think it would be a lot harder for me to do both of these, both of these jobs. So I'm, um, I love it. I like, I like having a kind of little, you know, quiet house where we're drinking tea and typing away. I highly recommend it. Everyone should fall in love and get married. <laughs> um, I do have to ask, who is the better Injustice 2 player? Uh, she is. Yeah, by a lot. Uh, I played fighting games my entire life and she just mops the floor with me. Um, she's usually a scarecrow and that, that hook on the chain, man, 
that long ass hook on the on the rusty chain. I just can't I can't get away from it. So, Scarecrow and Starfire. She just cleans my clock. I, I haven't played Injustice two, so I I, I uh, I'm, I'm picturing kind of Scarecrow just kind of yelling "Get over here!" at the end there, like Scorpion in Mortal Kombat. Yeah, no, that's pretty close. Yeah, <laughs> that's basically that's basically how it goes down. Yeah, Injustice two is wild. Uh, actually, uh, I did a. Um, uh, story for the Harley Quinn 25th anniversary issue uh, where she goes into the green and while she's there she um, makes a, she makes a hammer uh, out of out of wood uh, like magic green wood and uh, hits hit swamp thing in the face with it and uh, that came from us playing so much injustice 2 around the house that uh, when the editors uh, over at DC asked me if I if I wanted to contribute a Harley Quinn story. I said, "Can I do one where she gets in a fist fight with Swamp Thing?" Because that would never happen in the comics, but it happens every day at my house, and I think <laughs> it's awesome. And uh, they were like, "Yeah, kind of, sort of, yeah, make it work. Yes, if you can come up with an organic reason for Harley Quinn to hit Swamp Thing in the face." Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I, I built the whole story around my desire to recreate that conflict from, uh, from injustice to honestly, that's how I pitch a lot of stuff. I, I have a story in the DC, uh, bad guys, uh, beach bash, uh, summer special that just came out. And, um, I wanted to do a story about, uh, Veronica Vreeland, uh, who's a character from, um, Batman, the animated series. So it's a, it's a penguin story. Uh, about him and Veronica as uh, teenagers, and it's kind of my my spiritual prequel to the Batman animated series uh, Birds of a Feather episode. And I just love the idea of Gotham socialites. Uh, and I found out that Veronica Vreeland had never, I think, had never been in a comic before, uh, or maybe she'd been in like the animated adventures, but not the DCU. So I just, uh, you know, as somebody who is just now getting to write comics in the mainstream universes uh any open door i can leap through it's like oh this will be cool maybe somebody will let me do this weird obscure thing i'll do d-man i'll do veronica vreeland <laughs> uh, that's fantastic uh daniel as we're wrapping up uh, how can people follow you online if you in fact wish to be followed oh man uh that's a that's when you phrase it that way i'm not so sure <laughs> <laughs> I, always like, I always like to give uh, him the agency so <laughs> Sure, 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 sure. Yeah, I'm at Kibblesmith uh, across all, all social media, um, and uh, I'm at uh, kibblesmith.com. Uh, you can also pick up uh, anything I'm working on comics and book-wise, uh, you know, in the Kindle store or on Comixology, uh, or hopefully at your local store, your shop. Daniel, thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Monday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics. You can follow WMQComics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote. Finally, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.